0: Good morning. The reading this morning is 1 Corinthians 12, the whole chapter. If you're reading from the Black uh, Pew Bible, that's on page 1113. Attentive listeners will note that those digits are the date of the next loaves and fishes luncheon. And uh, really attentive listeners, looking at you, will note that that's my birthday. Uh, So, not to make it about me, but. 1 Corinthians 12. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one there is given, through the Spirit, the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by that one Spirit to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one, just as he determines. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third, teachers, then workers of miracles, also those gift, those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with, with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kind of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. Let's pray. Father, it is... So encouraging that uh, you save us not by any works that we do or goodness in ourself, but only by your goodness. Um, and then you give, us, you give us gifts to use to serve others. Um, thank you that, that Pastor Yuri is using those gifts to serve us as pastor. Please be with him as he preaches now uh, and give him your words and give us all uh, attentive ears and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Stephen. I'd invite you to keep your Bibles open um, to 1 Corinthians 12, but also to find um, John chapter 16. We will be turning there as well. John 16 is found on page 1047 in your pew Bibles. 1047 in your pew Bibles is John chapter 16. We'll also be, mostly be um, staying in 1 Corinthians 12, so I'd invite you to keep your Bible's open there. On Tuesday night, at our annual general meeting, our very own, very beloved in house doctor, Neil, challenged us to consider a number of harsh realities that the church is facing, not just here at Bethesda, of course, but around the world, and especially in North America, and especially since the pandemic. He presented some startling statistics regarding the number of churches that are closing. And what's worse, the rate at which they're closing seems to be accelerating. Now, he didn't tell us this because we are in a dire, urgent need here at Bethesda. We're doing quite well financially, but we are looking ahead to the future And I did talk to uh, Neil this week and asked him if it would be okay if I I shared this uh, with you um, and to start my sermon this way. His point was, though, that we can't take what we have here at Bethesda for granted. We can't sit back and assume that the status quo will bring success in the future. And he even challenged us to imagine what an alternative future for Bethesda might look like as a charitable foundation rather than a church, how that idea would make us feel. Now, I'm going to be honest, and I was honest with Neil when I talked to him on the phone. Those words, that thought experiment, did not make me feel very good. And I suspect they didn't with others who were there, or with many of you who may be hearing these words for the first time right now. And yet I believe that Neil intended, and more importantly, that God intended for Neil's words to strike a chord deep in my being, deep in our being. To recognize and to acknowledge that clearly, undeniably, we are vulnerable, and clearly, undeniably, we have work to do. But just as clearly none of us are up to the task, clearly we need someone more than ourselves, someone who has abilities and resources beyond our own to preserve us. Clearly we need to seek and to trust and to depend on God himself. And I'm encouraged at how God has preserved and is preserving his church, Bethesda in particular, through countless storms, including this most recent COVID storm. In fact, if you know the history of Bethesda, you'll, you'll know that it was founded in the midst of a storm, out of a commitment to faithfulness and holiness. And while we must never take that instinct for the protection of what is good and holy for granted, it is part of our DNA here at Bethesda. But most importantly, and infinitely more important than our particular church's history, is that Bethesda, right now, is a church that is filled with people who are living life in the Spirit. And that obviously brings me to the topic of today's sermon. And I wanted to share the exact wording of today's question with you, a question that one of you submitted, because I found the wording of this question particularly insightful. The question was, what does the Bible teach us about the Holy Spirit, especially receiving the Holy Spirit and baptism in slash of the Holy Spirit? The Bible seems to teach different things at different times and places. What are we to believe? Now, of course, this is a huge question, and one which could fill many lifetimes worth of books and sermons. Asking what the Bible teaches about the Holy Spirit is literally asking what the Bible teaches about God himself. Now, I'm guessing that the person asking the question wants to know about what people call spiritual gifts or charismatic gifts, things like tongues and prophecy. But I'm going to put a pin on that topic until we get close to the end of today's sermon. Because before we can talk about those very specific and visible manifestations of the Spirit, we need to talk about what I would say are the most important aspects of what the Holy Spirit does, what he does in the life of every true Christian. I should say that I have no idea who asked today's question. But I want to say that I especially appreciate the precision of this question, especially this part. What does the Bible teach about the baptism in or of the Holy Spirit? To see how there's, there's a little question contained in the bigger question. What's, what's better, to say the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the baptism in the Holy Spirit? Or how about the baptism of the with the Holy Spirit. Now, many of you are probably thinking, what does it matter? Would you believe that even though the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something we say quite often, strictly speaking, it's not a phrase that we actually find in the Bible? Each of the Gospels reports how John the Baptist predicted that Jesus would baptize his disciples in or with the Holy Spirit, not that his followers would undergo a baptism of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the phrase, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, kind of, kind of brings to mind to me some kind of procedure or, or operation or method. But the biblical phrase, he will baptize you in or with the Holy Spirit, gets at something far deeper, far more personal. This baptism is close. And comprehensive. This baptism is intimate and invasive. It's a subversion by submersion. It is God plunging us into God, the second person of the Trinity immersing us into the third person of the Trinity, even the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who is not a force, not some detached dynamo, but a divine individual of one substance with the other members of the three in one, directing and diverting us in dialogue, our will joyfully submitting to his. And this is precisely how Jesus describes the coming of the one who he called the helper, the counselor, I will ask the Father, he said, as I told the kids a few minutes ago, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, another counselor, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, I like this question in a question, and though I don't think the phrase the baptism of the Holy Spirit is wrong exactly, I think the baptism in the Holy Spirit or the baptism with the Holy Spirit is more helpful since it gets us closer to the text of scripture, and it gets us closer to the true nature of this baptism and the true nature of the Holy Spirit himself. So, I just gave you some pretty heady theology stuff So to clear your head, here's the question again. What does the Bible teach us about the Holy Spirit, especially receiving the Holy Spirit and baptism in the Holy Spirit? The Bible seems to teach different things at different times and places. What are we to believe? And as I said, I can't possibly give a complete answer in one lifetime, let alone one sermon. But I've done my best to give a summary answer in the central truth of today's message. The Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit surrounds and fills every believer, binding us to Jesus, making us like him, making us one. And as he pleases, he gives us special gifts for the good of all. Now, each phrase in this sentence builds on the previous one and and moves from the universal to the particular. In other words, it goes from things that are true for every believer to things that are experienced differently in every believer. But let's start by fleshing out the first part a bit in some shorter sentences. The Holy Spirit is everywhere all at once. Of course, of course he is. He's God, so of course he is everywhere all at once. But he's especially close to those who have trusted in Jesus. He is immediately present, immediately available to them. It is to them that he gives new life. That is, it is to believers, it is to us that he is near. To put it the other way around, we were dead. So on our own, we were unable to believe in Jesus. On our own, we could not truly say, as Paul talks about early in chapter 12, we could not say Jesus is Lord. How could we? We were dead. How could we say anything? But the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit has raised us from the dead. But he did more than that, and he's not just near to us, next to us. He surrounds us. That means that he supports us and strengthens us from the outside in. And he fills us. That means that he feeds us. It means that he changes us from the inside out. So now, that explains the first part of this sentence. The Holy Spirit surrounds and fills every believer but it also starts to explain the first part and the last part of our Bible verse, 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, the verse that we're studying today. In one spirit we were all baptized, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Surrounds and fills. Baptizing is an English form of a Greek word, which means literally to dunk something, to immerse it. Jesus himself was the one who told his followers that they would be baptized or immersed in the Holy Spirit. So that's where we get the idea of being surrounded. Now much more common, in fact, runs, it runs through the whole Bible, but especially in the New Testament is the idea of being filled by the Holy Spirit. Paul's expression for the, in our verse, it's a little unusual, but it's talking about the same thing, being made to drink the Holy Spirit. We are filled with him. So now, building on that universal truth, that is, the Holy Spirit is present to us whether we feel him or not, the second part of my sentence sketches out the main activity of the Holy Spirit in our lives in relationship to us. First of all, it it explains how we're brought from death to life. The Holy Spirit binds us to Jesus. Jesus is the one who was raised from death to eternal life. And he was the first one to do that. Romans 8 tells us that it was the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And it's the Holy Spirit who unites us to him. This is such an important point that it's worth turning there right now. Romans 8, verse 11. I have got it on the screen if you don't want to turn in your Bibles. Paul writes there, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead... Dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'm going to read that again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that is the spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit is the one who gives us life by binding us, uniting us to Jesus Christ. And as far as you and I are concerned, the things that I've mentioned so far about what the Bible teaches us about the Holy Spirit are by far the most important things that we can know about the Holy Spirit. It's important to highlight that all this activity... The Holy Spirit's drawing near to us, his surrounding us and filling us, his uniting us to our resurrected Savior Jesus, his giving us life through him is not something, though, that we can necessarily feel. And this is really important, especially for those who struggle with things like chronic pain or or degenerative diseases or, or mental illness. For many, it's hard to feel like they're living a worthwhile life, let alone the victorious life that God promises. It can feel like God has abandoned you. When you're feeling that way, it's, it's easy to start questioning whether you're whether even saved at all. But Jesus' victory over sin and death is nevertheless applied to us by the Holy Spirit. His victory is our victory. It is secure even if you can't feel it. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see, the book of Hebrews tells us. In other words, life in the Spirit is often lived in spite of what we see or how we feel. That is against what our body and even our brain may be telling us. And now, building on the truths that the Holy Spirit surrounds you, unites every believer to Christ, raising us up with him to new life in him, the Holy Spirit also makes us like Jesus. What we call the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, these are the traits that Jesus himself embodied the spirit makes us loving joyful peaceful patient kind good faithful gentle having self-control just like jesus but how how does he make us like jesus well to find the answer let's turn now to the gospel of john chapter 16 gospel of john chapter 16, I think I said it was 1147 in your pew Bibles, or 1047 maybe. Actually, I'm going to read it from my ESV version. John chapter 16, verses 7 through 15. This is Jesus speaking to his closest friends. Just before he goes to the cross. I tell you to the truth. I tell you the truth," he says. "It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he, the Helper, will take what is mine and declare it to you. So John tells us, tells his disciples, that Jesus said the Spirit Convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, what does that mean? We're going to look at that a little bit more closely. And it's important that we contrast this, this conviction of sin, from what we call usually a conscience. Now, by God's grace, everyone on the planet has a conscience. Our conscience, as you know, is the part of us that tells us when we've done something wrong. But our conscience is not the Holy Spirit. That should be obvious, since our conscience is a part of us. And since our conscience is a human faculty, not a divine revelation, it is culturally conditioned, at least in part. That is, it'll look different depending on where you live. For instance, every culture considers that there are circumstances when it is perfectly reasonable, even desirable, to lie, to steal, even to enslave, to oppress, and to kill. People do such things all over the world today with a perfectly clear conscience. Our own culture is coming to terms with just such a track record in the recent history. Unfortunately, consciences are very easily set at ease, especially at the cultural level. Societies are good at convincing themselves that sin is something that other people do, perhaps including ourselves, but only in our past. We don't do that sort of thing anymore. By contrast, Jesus said something far more challenging than this. He said in verse 9, look at it, verse 9, he said, that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Not because they do bad things, because they do not believe in me. That is, sin is about something far more deeply ingrained, far more personal even than the worst things that we do. Sin is not something that we can just outrun. That's because sin is an attitude of the heart that says, I am in control of my life. In essence, I am God. No matter what culture you're from, no matter whether you're high status or low status, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, he will convict you of your innate tendency to rebel against your creator and how that rebellion results in actions every day, every hour, every second that hurt that hurt others, that, that hurt yourself, that hurt his creation. No matter how long you've been a Christian, the Holy Spirit will show you again and again how you fail to place your whole trust in the Lord Jesus. Without the meekness, without the humility that that conviction produces, it does not matter how nice you may make yourself seem. You are never going to be anything like Jesus. But Jesus also said something far more elevating. Elevating, but but also puzzling. Now look at verse 10. He said that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness. The Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. What does that mean? Well... Since Jesus was going to the Father, since he knew that we would no longer be able to see him, he knew that we would have no obvious model to follow. So the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ himself, convicts us of righteousness. He shows us what righteousness is. So he shows us how we fall short, but praise God even more than that, he shows us how to be better, And he provides the circumstances and the strength to do it. He places us in situations that feel good and encouraging, but also, and more importantly for making us like Jesus, he puts us in situations that feel bad and frustrating as well. But whether you're in a place that feels good or bad to you, whether you feel like a success or a failure, the Holy Spirit gives you the strength to be able to persevere. And through it all, he is making you more and more and more like Jesus. Once again, you may not be able to feel the strength that the Holy Spirit is giving you, but he's giving it to you all the same. And Jesus said something else to his disciples here, something sobering and something hopeful. He said that the Holy Spirit convicts the world concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us a settled view of how everything will turn out, of how the story ends. However bad things may get in our lives, however much our world may seem to be falling apart, however proud we may feel about our accomplishments, We need to know who we are allied to and we need to know that satan is going to lose and that jesus is going to win in fact he satan has already lost and jesus has already won jesus when he said these words was facing the cross Knowing that it would be the decisive victory over Satan, the one he called the ruler of this world. Well, equipped with these convictions given to us by the Holy Spirit concerning sin, that is our tendency toward unbelief, concerning righteousness, giving us an inclination to live a better life, a Jesus kind of life, and concerning judgment, the hope that Jesus has already defeated the evil one, we can. Persevere. Now, merely dragging yourself along does not automatically make you like Jesus. It is not an automatic thing. Jesus went on to say that the Holy Spirit would guide us into all the truth and that the Spirit would not speak on his own authority. And in Jesus' prayer over in chapter 17, he affirmed. That thy word is truth. In other words, the Holy Spirit doesn't presto chango, make us like Jesus. He works through the word, through the Bible, to make us like him. Jesus is the author of the Bible. Jesus is the word made flesh. So if you do not know your Bible, if you refuse to immerse yourself in it, to be baptized into the word, you will not become like Jesus. The Spirit gives us illumination through the Scriptures. And that light on our path is a big part, probably the biggest, the most obvious part of how we experience the Holy Spirit day by day. If you neglect your Bible, you will not truly experience the Holy Spirit. Either you will completely dry up, spiritually speaking, Or you will lie to yourself, imagining you are having spiritual encounters when they are, in fact, quite worldly, even demonic. Neglect your Bible, and Jesus will be a stranger to you. So the Holy Spirit, who is God himself living in and around and through us, does far more than our pitiful conscience does. So now, turning back to 1 Corinthians 12. As we have seen, the Holy Spirit surrounds us. The Holy Spirit binds us to Jesus, transferring his benefits to us. His life for our death. And the Holy Spirit changes us. He makes us like Jesus. Well, in our verse... Paul says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. In other words, surrounding us, binding us, transforming us, the Holy Spirit makes us one. He unites us in ways that defy reason. We can't explain why in Christ we begin to love people we wouldn't ordinarily bother to even think about. We usually care about our people, our family, our coworkers, our classmates. And when we do care about people who are farther, farther from our inner circle, we tend to care about people in our demographic. If we're young, we rarely spend time with old people. If we're city dwellers, we have urban concerns. If we're fans of this or that thing, we'll seek out other fans to geek out with. We naturally identify with people who have the same upbringing or at least a similar perspective as we do. But Paul says that no matter how far apart we may be, culturally speaking, in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And as we heard Stephen read earlier, he goes on to make it crystal clear that this body that he is talking about is none other than Jesus' own body. In his church, by his spirit, we are made even more like Jesus' We need to be here among the members of God's church, among the members of the body of Christ, in order to be like Jesus. This is really Paul's larger point in his letter to the church at Corinth, and especially in this passage where he's talking about spiritual gifts, because Corinth was a church that was obsessed with status and with the spectacular with deciding who was most important and, and with stuff like speaking in tongues and prophecy. And such manifestations, the showy kinds of things, were being used by the Corinthians to divide and classify the people among them. Now, Paul certainly does not deny these manifestations of the Spirit among the church at Corinth, and even to a certain extent, he encourages them, but he's quite clear that there are many ways that the Holy Spirit shows up in the body of Christ and that each, that each manifestation is, as he says in verse 7, for the common good. His purpose in writing Corinth is to challenge them to seek this common good, to seek love within the body of Christ, to seek the more excellent way of the Spirit which is the very last verse of verse 12 of chapter 12 which leads us into the famous love chapter that you hear at weddings which has nothing to do with weddings right <laughs> Paul challenges them to seek the more excellent way of the spirit the spirit gives love that is more excellent than tongues, more excellent than prophecy, more excellent than healing even. Love is more excellent even than being an apostle or a teacher or an administrator. In the church, as Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That only happens by the Holy Spirit. Paul's point in chapter 12 is that each one, every, every Christian, every Christian is given a variety of spiritual gifts. You don't just have one, or this one, or that one, this amazing one, this like not so impressive one. Every Christian is given a variety of spiritual gifts. And many of them, the ones that he lists here, in fact, most of them are not the showy ones, the ones that you can see easily. And surprisingly, in his list of spiritual gifts, Paul doesn't subdivide them or or classify them in a way that makes any sense in terms of taxonomy. In fact, that's true of every list of spiritual gifts that you find in the Bible. They mix gifts that don't seem like they belong together, and, and certainly none of them ever gives a complete list. And this is why, incidentally, that it is important to understand that the so-called baptism of the Holy Spirit is not some kind of mechanical operation or procedure. It isn't God's dole, but his gift. The gift of himself. Remember, the biblical phrase is, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, or in the Holy Spirit. This baptism, as I said, is personal and intimate, and so it's different for every person, every time and every place. It's also, as our question today asks, why the Bible seems to teach different things at different times and different places. It's different because in each time and place and person, God carefully chooses exactly what he wants to give each of his beloved children. It's like a pile of presents shoved under God's Christmas tree. The Bible jumbles the gifts of the Holy Spirit all together, and there's so many of them and such a variety that they threaten to upstage the tree. Some of them seem really big and shiny and exciting. Others are tiny, wrapped in plain brown paper, almost unnoticeable, forgotten. must be a tie. But there are presents for everyone, and each present is specially chosen, specially designed for the person who is to receive it. But there's a big difference between the kinds of lovely things we expect on Christmas and the kinds of gifts that God gives. We want what we want. We want what we think will make us happy. But God gives gifts, as Paul says, for the common good. How much fun is that? That is, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives are gifts that build up the body of Christ. They're not mere toys for us to play with. They are most certainly not status symbols, a sign that God is more pleased with one person than he is with another. And while God's gifts are always a life-giving blessing, they also come with responsibilities, often painful and even confusing responsibilities. And so they're responsibilities that make us rely even more completely on the Holy Spirit. And since they cannot be enjoyed or used by anyone who is not humble and submissive to the Father's will, the Holy Spirit's true gifts make us more completely like Jesus. Now, I suspect that the person who asked today's question may have wanted someone to weigh in on whether we are so-called cessationists or continuationists. So I will actually briefly say a word about that. A cessationist is someone who says that God gave his most spectacular gifts in fits and starts and only in Bible times, and that God gave them in order to attest that a prophet was sent from God And most importantly, that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. A cessationist believes that God always intended for these obviously miraculous gifts to cease. A continuationist, on the other hand, is someone who says that God has always given these gifts in equal measure, or at least he's wanting to give these gifts in equal measure, and that he always intended for them to continue to the modern day. Now, of course, you don't have to be a great scholar to notice that the kinds of things that you read about in the Bible don't seem to happen every day for most people. The cessationist says, well, why would you expect them to? That's as it should be. The continuationist says, "It's well, no, it's because we don't have enough faith. Now, I won't speak for anyone else, but in my opinion, the biblical evidence points towards the fact that obvious miracles have never been the norm at any time. And that through Jesus and his apostles, God gave the world a blessing that was unique to their time in order to establish his church. That said, the Holy Spirit is always at work in every believer to do things that would be not only impossible, but undesirable without him. Jesus Christ has baptized everyone who has truly trusted in him with the Holy Spirit. That means that everyone who trusts in Jesus lives in the constant presence of the Holy Spirit. We all are surrounded and filled by him. It means that everyone who trusts in Jesus is united to him, praise be to God, and is secure in him and his saving grace forever. Hallelujah. It means that everyone who trusts in Jesus is made to be like him. It means that those who truly trust in him will not be able to keep themselves from meeting together. As we are infused by the scriptures, we will find ourselves called to do things by the Holy Spirit that we would never do on our own. We're taken to places by the Holy Spirit we would never visit. And by the Holy Spirit, we love those who would be utterly unlovable to us because the Holy Spirit gives us the eyes of Jesus himself to see them as he does. In other words, to acknowledge and embrace the fact that God has chosen to work in different ways at different times does not mean that you think God is not active or that he's stopped working miracles altogether today. In this vein, Sinclair Ferguson wrote an article published last week on Ligonier.org called Spirit of Light. And it's a very good, I took a big quote from it. He writes there The result of the Spirit working with the Word of God to illumine, that means to give light to, and to transform our thinking, the result is the development of a godly instinct. That instinct operates in sometimes surprising ways. The revelation of Scripture becomes, in a well-taught, spirit-illuminated believer, illumined believer, so much a part of his or her mindset that the will of God frequently seems to become instinctively and even immediately clear. Just as whether a piece of music is well or badly played is immediately obvious to a well-disciplined musician. You can tell why I picked this. (laughs) Well-meaning Christians sometimes mistake the Spirit's work of illumination for revelation, which unhappily can lead to serious theological confusion and potentially unhappy practical consequences. The doctrine of illumination, that is, that the Holy Spirit illuminates us, gives us light through the word of God, also helps us explain some of the more mysterious elements in our experience without having to resort to the claim that we have the gift of revelation and prophecy. And here he quotes a man named John Murray. He says, here John Murray spoke with great wisdom. John Murray said, As we are the subjects of this illumination, as we are given light, as we are responsive to it, and as the Holy Spirit is operative in us, that is, as the Holy Spirit is working in us to the doing of God's will, we shall have feelings, we shall have impressions, convictions, urges, inhibitions, impulses, burdens, resolutions, illumination, and direction by the Spirit through the Word of God will focus themselves in our consciousness in these ways. And I can tell from uh, you from personal experience that I have had um, in my own life instances, in fact, uh, really significant instances where I did not know how to categorize it until I read this quote. <laughs> and uh, it was very, very helpful for me. And, uh, And uh, the Lord has been very gracious to me. In many of my sermons this year, you may remember, I've brought out that we are, we are collectively God's dwelling place, collectively and individually. We, as God's people, are God's temple. You and I are God's tabernacle. His tent, as I said a few weeks ago. We are those in whom and among whom the Holy Spirit of God lives and moves and works to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, I started my sermon with reference to Neil's gentle, I would say they were very gentle words of alert and counsel at our annual general meeting just a few days ago. And it may seem like a strange place to start for a sermon about the Holy Spirit, Does the Holy Spirit move at AGMs? I'm not sure, but I think so. (laughs) But I did start there because in this passage, the passage that we're studying today, Paul makes clear that at its core, the church is not a building. We hear that a lot, of course. The church is not a building. The church is not a collection of assets. And it may be incorporated, but it is not, at bottom, a legal entity at all nor is it even a league of extraordinary individuals or a a do-good society or a dead prophet society. The church is the ecclesia, the gathering of blood-bought, spirit-transformed, a gathering of the blood-bought, of the spirit-transformed, of the truly, eternally alive. The church is the body of Christ, and he is alive. We are made so by the spirit of Christ, who surrounds us, who binds us to him, who changes us, and who showers us with gifts for the good of all. Jesus said, where where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So a church never stops existing because of low attendance. A church never stops existing because it can't pay its bills. A church never stops existing because it loses its building or because it changes its legal status. A church, a real church, doesn't—now this is dangerous for me to say— doesn't (laughs) really need paid staff to be a church. They need them for other reasons. It doesn't need programs. A church only ceases being a real church when the Holy Spirit is no longer present, when there are no longer any true spirit-filled believers that call that particular gathering home whatever that home may look like. A church only ever dwindles to death when it forsakes the spirit that gives her the will to live The flip side of that is that wherever there are Spirit filled servants of Christ, they will be inclined to gather. They will meet to worship Him, to hear the preaching of His Word, to baptize, to celebrate the Lord's table. And when they do that, filled by the Holy Spirit, there is a church. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, this morning I am completely aware of how you've sustained me this day, this week, this year, and how much in need I am for you to sustain me in the future doing things that not only impossible for me to do but undesirable at times for me to do. Lord, I've been reminded for the last two weeks of the words of your of that great hymn Rock of Ages Nothing in our hands do we bring, Lord Simply to your cross do we cling Naked, we come to you for dress. Helpless, we look to you for grace. Foul, we to the fountain fly. Wash us. By your spirit, O Savior, or we die. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. We started our service this morning with Some words from Isaiah 11, speaking, looking ahead to the coming of Jesus, then these, the words really referring to Jesus. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord Later on he takes up the same thread. It is now the spirit, is now the servant speaking. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. And I would add by his spirit that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Just imagine Jesus waking up morning by morning hearing the Spirit's voice, thinking of the word of God, which he had likely memorized completely. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. And finally, Peter says, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you may follow in his steps. Go and do likewise.